Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. My name is Michelle Byrne and I'm here with my co-host Glenn Fitzpatrick. And as always, we're going to be having a look at the weekend stories from the week um, and from a left perspective. And The Week at Work is part of Left Block, as you know, a political education and media project. And you can find out more about us on, on support us on patreon.com slash leftblock. And we know at the moment that's very important because we have tickets coming up soon for our Left Block Festival on Clutch Clee that people are um starting to ask a lot of questions about so our patrons will hear first so be sure to check it out there um so this week glenn's going to kick us off with some stories that you were reading yeah thanks very much michelle thanks for uh asking back on today and uh happy with sunday to you which i'm reliably told by rte brainstorm this morning is traditionally the most unlucky day in the year in the in the christian calendar so um no leaving your your six siblings on their own today in the dark um no walking on the ladders or anything like that um, so yeah, no, just a quick look at the, obviously the front pages are, are all honing in on that Red Sea poll, which came out yesterday, I think it was Red Sea and the Business Post. Um, so just at a headline level there, it's got Sinn Féin up to 34, Fianna Fáil down 20, sorry, sorry Fianna Gael down 20, Fianna Fáil 15, Independence others at 11, uh, Sock Dems are up 1 to 6, Boat Labour and the Greens at 4, PVP 3, aim to 1. Um, so yeah, I mean like, I suppose it's 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 a high for Sinn Féin in, in, in recent Red Sea polls. Um it's probably not a good look for the coalition. Um I think last time I was on, we were talking about another poll where I was kind of speculating that things in the government seems to be suiting Fina Gael pretty well, that they seem to be able to, you know, uh, position themselves for a period post-government and that Fianna Fáil and the Greens were kind of taking a lot of the brunt of that. Um maybe <laughs> Just reminded of Homer Simpson doing the spinning on the ground at Mr. Burns and the Simpsons. And the, you know, maybe Leo Varadkar isn't the genius political strategist that I first thought he was um, because they've obviously had a pretty poor week of it. Started off with the, um, I suppose, the TDs who aren't going to be uh, abandoning the sinking ship, the sinking ship next time. The likes of Jennifer Karen McNeil, Peter Burke, Martin Hayden started the week with their opinion piece talking about the need to give the squeeze middle uh, a tax break. That's obviously caused a week of supposed rifts conversations in, in, in between the coalition parties um so as you can imagine then today that the the colonists that are also saying the same thing that shane ross is saying that the phony truce is over gary murphy in the times sunday is saying that um this is putting the most strain on the coalition that we've seen um so you can sort of see where this is going that the narrative is that we're shifting to a so-called election footing um and now we get to hear about how different fina gaeta fina fall are from each other over the next year to 18 months so uh, get your bingo, bingo cards ready about how, how Fianna Fáil were always traditionally centre-left, agrarian, working class uh, and all that. But um, yeah, look, I just I, just, I was curious. Um, I just I went to Paddy Power this morning. Um, I haven't put my weekly football bet on yet, but I had a quick look at their um, odds for when the next election is going to be. Uh, so for one to be this year, it's seven to two. For next year is 15 to eight. And for 2025, so essentially for the government to go the distance, is four to five, which is the shortest price. So um, all this talk of a November 24, 24 election, um, bookies tend not to give too much away. They still think it's more than likely that the government will go to this. And so maybe Mary Lou is right when she calls all this a distraction. Um, but yeah, I mean, it doesn't make for good reading for government parties as it stands. No, not at all. But it's not helped with the with what they lend themselves. You know, the stories they speak for themselves. You know, we've hit another record high on homelessness again this week. Like it's just... Every time we report, it's just relentless. It's continually um, increasing. Um, you have another news story where um, the hospitals are asking staff to voluntary, 
work over the weekend because it's in such crisis. Um, you know, so like the stories speak for themselves. Like there's a reason why they're in such crisis and they can put as much spin as they want on it. Um, but at the end of the day, the facts, the, the, the stories are there that it, 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 it's, it's their, it's their own, um, it's their own legacy, I guess. But um, I know Stephen Donnelly was at the, um, the Forza, uh, com- one of the Forza conferences this weekend, um, um, the health service division, I believe. And he was kind of mentioned a couple of things. And I saw uh, Forza Left, which is a, a kind of a, an activist group within the membership, calling out some of the lies uh, that Donnelly was spewing to the conference, saying, you know, that they're decreasing trolley times and all of this. Well, at the same time, a couple of days later, there's, you know, media pieces about how, oh, can, can people please sign up to do extra shifts over the, the bank holiday weekend because they're at crisis points. Just, yeah, it's not adding up like. Mm, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird that there's a conversation going on about, you know, budget surpluses of running into the plus 60 billion over the next few years. Um, and that we can have all these sort of day-to-day things going on. But yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, interesting. All right. So was, was it the INMO as well? Were they also um, commenting about uh, needing to change rosters and, 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 and contracts in relation to the delivery of services at the moment? Or was that unconnected? Sorry. Could have been. I didn't read that particular story. Um, it was just coming out of the, the Forza conference that I had read. Um, but there was some other um, pieces there around... Um, I know that Forza had also informed the HSE that was officially in a trade dispute um, because of the privatisation through like outsourcing their recruitment services. And um, they had also were coming out rejecting a proposal from from Donnelly on the use of the National Treatment Purchase Fund for to fund private um, psychological assessments and therapies. So there's a lot of rife there, even if you just look at Forza. I'm not I'm, I'm sure it's in IMO as well. And we'll have to bring that up next week. But I, I guess just on that vein of some of the other trade union stories that happened this weekend, I guess I'm going to co- cover for us a little bit this week. Maybe I left them out last week a little bit, so I'll cover a few more stories from them. But the there's the Aer Lingus regional flight operator, um, Emerald Air. They have their their pilots now have announced um industrial action um which goes up to strikes um for their kind of pay conditions and union recognition. And I know Ryanair is known as a very anti worker um. A flight provider and now it looks like Aer Lingus is joining joining the gang there as well uh, this this week so um that's obviously very disappointing to see but you know hopefully fair play to the workers and hopefully um they'll get that union recognition that they deserve um and yeah and even just even on the health stuff as well um I saw Forza were also advising their members in Cork University Hospital to stop interacting with external consultants from PwC again more privatization and like outsourcing of a public uh service so look it's just it's rife within all of the structures like this the ideological neoliberal ideology is just running through all like running down public services outsourcing everything that we possibly can into the private sector um but it's good to see that the trade unions and our member our members are pushing back on that move and calling it out because i think that's really important and it's definitely a good role for for us to be in the middle of Probably just worth ha- highlighting as well. I mean, obviously, Aer Lingus are, are not Irish owned anymore. They're not, not even semi state owned anymore. I think they're owned by IEG, which is also British Airways and Iberia. I think they're a Spanish company. Um, but they still blast you with the Enya music and the, the Emerald Green when you get on the, the plane to suppose maybe uh, codge that they're different to Ryanair a little bit. But I think you're dead right. I mean, that, you know, 
Ryanair's presence in that in the in the aircraft industry is obviously harmonized terms and conditions downwards um over the years. I think Aer Lingus would have always traditionally been considered um a better employer and a and a more union friendly employer over the years. Um it's a shame that uh that, that it's gone that way. Um but yeah you're right. I mean obviously at you know at, at the society level we've got you know cost of living going up we've got um industrial action we've got uh ic2 as well calling for uh, not before time, mind you, um, a new increase in the minimum wage. So they want two euros an hour extra um, from next January, and then a following two year, following January, another two euro. Um, but it is worth bearing in mind this government said they would bring a living wage in, you know, during the duration of this government, and they're running short on time to do that. So I suppose it looks it to who obviously did walk away from the, the low pay commission a number of uh, months years ago, now I think as well. Um, but that is to still trying to remind people that that's on the agenda. But yeah, um, it'd be actually quite funny if we ended up with a living wage with that. I mean, basically, that's that that's come about because it too walked away from the low pay commission, which I think I've said in the past was its, ma- its main modus operandi seemed to be to ensure the continuance of low pay rather than to actually explore the material impact of it or eradicate it in any way, shape, or form. Absolutely. It's just being used as a bit of a buffer for, for government, as far as I can see and from previous experience myself um, with it. But in that statement that they came out with on the, the that it came out with on the increase of minimum wage and kind of replacing the idea of a minimum wage, a living wage, it was also a piece around um and you know, as you say, not for its time, calling out that the, you know, that the minimum wage and having like reductions based on age grounds that are ill-judged and outdated, is what Owen really said. Um and that whole idea that, you know, talk about paying adults a, a percentage of the national minimum wage just because of your age, even though you're doing the same work. I've mentioned here in this podcast before, but, you know, the people should be earning the full wage that everyone else is for the same work and including apprenticeships as well. Um, and it's not as and, and it's actually quite timely as well, because I know um, ICTU youth have been talking about launching a campaign on this. Um, and I know Unite Young Members and Mandate Young Members um in particular, have been uh, leading on this to formulate a campaign to scrap that uh, those you know that multi-tiered system based on age, just discriminatory age ageism, um, on what young people should be paid, um, you know, for for that, which is mostly in precarious, low-paid work as well. To be fair, but um, I, you have something else there, Glenn. You wanted no. to come in on? Yeah, I might just I, just, I find the um. The, the sub-minimum wage rates and the continuance of them pretty startling. Um, so I'm not, I'm not a, I haven't got the figures exactly to hand. Like, but I think people hear that people hear the headline rate of the minimum wage and they say, "Oh, that's not too bad." But I don't think people actually realise that it is staggered. That you earn it differently. I think it goes all the way back down to seventeen or sixteen. I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, I think they've been abolished in Germany, Spain, and some other parts of the EU as well. Um. You know, so I think it's 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 important that that you know if 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 unions aren't proactively negotiating and totally removing them from collective agreements, that you know we certainly should be moving towards doing that at a at a, at a you know just as a blanket rate. Um, yeah, not hundred percent sure what they are, but I do know that they they, they target them all the way down, don't they? So you, you earn a different rate if you're 17, 18, 19, 20. Um, yeah, sorry. that's it. Yeah, so maybe just um, yeah, so just to go back to the Red Sea poll there, uh, because it's, it's it's impossible to get away from that it's the the big headline grabber in the poll aside from the the political party and figures. 
is this uh, headline today that um, 75% of respondents think that the country's taken in um, too many refugees. Um, so look, I mean, I haven't had a chance to delve through uh, Red Sea's sort of spread of this yet. They haven't uploaded the full data set into its, onto their website and I haven't gotten a chance to listen to somebody go through exactly how they've asked these questions. Um, so I'm just basing it off what I've read in the business post here. So the report from Michael Brennan, um, if you go down into the article itself, look, I'm, I'm I suppose looking for some things to, to, to moderate what is a pretty worrying, I suppose, stat. But so 64% of respondents also say that the system is too slow processing uh, asylum seekers, um, which probably is like a, an anti-racist position to take, that you're sort of saying, yeah, these people are being treated poorly by the system. So two thirds of people are saying that. So look, it's never as simple as saying 75% of respondents uh, are, are anti-immigrant or, or this, that and the other. But I have no idea um, who sits down and says, let's, let's ask this question here about, are you concerned if these people moving into your area or can you understand people being concerned about uh, refugees moving into their area because this whole concept of concern is a far right dog whistle um i don't think it has a place in an opinion poll like this um and then the report itself look at i mean we've talked about the two-tier refugee um mindset that's been ingrained in this country over the last year and a half or so uh, the article literally in the same sentence says eighty-four thousand ukrainian refugees and fifteen thousand asylum seekers so in the same sentence, it's a totally normalized part of the reporting um, that we can refer to Ukrainian refugees and 15,000 asylum seekers um, and, and, and nobody bats an eyelid. So, um, but yeah, sorry, I have no idea like whether the people who are asked those questions were, were asked them against the backdrop of a government that's failed for multiple years to provide for housing and proper services at the community level or whether it was just asked in a vacuum. Um, but I do think it's it's... Like most polls, you know, they're they're used to 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 steer a conversation rather than necessarily to give a, a a true reflection of where people's heads are at with some of this stuff. So, um, I I would be taking the seventy five percent thing with a with a massive grain of salt. Yeah, um, absolutely. As we as we always do with the, a lot of those polls as well, how, and it would be interesting to see the details. I mean, we can follow up on that. Um, again, but another story that kind of links into that a little bit was during the week. Um, I think it was at the end of the week actually. Um, there was a story from a, an entertainment lobby. Um, the MEA AI and how it was framed and how it's impacting. Um, the entertainment industry was around there's not enough hotel accommodation because of asylum seekers and refugees and there was no mention of the fact that this has been an issue for years and that hotels have been used for emergency accommodation with the highest numbers we've just had the highest homeless figures coming out this week um but yeah interesting framing very worrying and you know feeding into that you know what's happening at the moment and I don't know if that was an editorial choice or from the lobby group themselves but uh, disappointing to see that um been framed in that way obviously and worrying that you know potentially people would be brought in on that narrative saying you know you know I can't get accommodation for my gigs because of um people seeking safety in asylum um I I, I know it's probably people need to maybe consider their priorities there as well but at the same time I had been in contact with um people during the week around how there's there's no access to late night uh, buses um from those gigs as well as someone who regularly um <laughs> is trying to get a bus past midnight from Dublin to Waterford uh, is actually impossible um and it's not possible to get one from uh, Cork to Waterford past eleven o'clock in the evening so that rules out a lot of gigs for me but uh, don't know if the accommodation thing um or if the the that entertainment lobby group are are considering um that as well yeah uh, it's it's um. 
real kind of case of the wheel that squeaks loudest gets the oil. I kind of feel like we ha- we have to hear from the tourism industry pretty much everything. I mean, they're on the radio every day during COVID, you know, basically being put up alongside the, you know, the the disease specialists in terms of whether we should have two meters or one meter. Um, I remember before COVID, like you, on a weekday in Dublin, you couldn't like stand at a bus stop because there was literally so many tourists moving up and down Dame Street. Um, like some some countries are comfortable with concepts of let's have a conversation about over tourism. Um, cities like Brussels will charge tourists to city tax to pay for the material impact that tourists have on cities, on refuse, on on climate, on sustainability, on biodiversity, and all these things. Um, and I mean, I think there's a real case that we need to have a conversation about over tourism in Ireland, um, and that's a conversation we should be having before talking about whether we've taken in too many refugees. Um, but it's kind of you know nobody wants to go there. Yeah, well, you'll start hearing people pull out figures of like, oh, the economy um, and, you know, how much that that feeds into it and everything. And, you know, that whole idea that, you know, I was reading an article during the week about, you know, how the, that term like the, about the economy is just, you know, very farcical. And what we should be talking about is the impact on people's lives. And if we are saying that people who are homeless, who need emergency accommodation is you know, is God, God forbid we're dragging, dragging down the tourism sector, then I feel like we re- really need to be um, reestablishing what we mean by um, an economy and what we mean by um, an Ireland that works for, um, for everyone. Um, but yeah, the, on, on that as well. Um, um, yeah, sorry, on that. Um, it, it was interesting, speaking of the economy, there was a story on um, the examiner around the the well paid tech workers that trade um in uh, joining trade unions very interesting framing actually on the well paid um because it, I don't think you see uh, the the opposite framing when you're talking about workers issues in a, in a paper but in that story it actually talks about how like I think it's like one in every seven I think it was one in every seven euro or something um was coming in from revenue from taxes from the tech sector and like um the the trade union official there Garrett um Murphy was talking about like how tech um the tech industry has too much power um and you know and now we're talking about like the huge layoffs that are happening in the sector and the the, the industry itself are just completely getting away with it you know um we're and that whole framing of like, you know, well-paid tech workers and everything. But like, we have to remember that unions are more than just, you know, pay. It's about redundancy. It's about, um, you know, getting the best deal in redundancies, job security, um, conditions, union recognition. So um, I think, you know, with all the talks of like, you know, all the layoffs um, and restructuring, which just is a fancy word for sacking people, um, and, you know, talking about uh, they were talking about some of the barriers there. But again, the, the government won't want to engage with that because, again, it's about the economy, how much revenue um, these tech industries are bringing in. But they forget that these as they frame it as well-paid tech workers, they're bringing in a lot of taxes, too, as well. Um, so I think that's important to note. But it was interesting as well in the in that article in the examiner. Um, FSU go on to say, um, all right, they t- start talking about like the barriers of the law um, in them being able to collectively bargain for those workers um, and how, you know, trade unions, aren't, trade union officials aren't allowed in the room when those negotiations are happening and um, that they can only kind of prep people to go in. And then essentially the members are left in there by themselves because, it, you know, the law doesn't allow for them to be in. And then they were talking about how the the 30 day consultation period that, um that's allowed for in law you know between union and its members and between um proposals that are made is now been dragged out by um 
the actual the tech companies so that they don't have time to have that consultation in, in a real way. Um, so they're really winded in the clock. And again, obviously, we don't have the recognition, um, trade union recognition that workers deserve. So and they talk about then the new legislation coming in or did, well, the new le- the new legislation director from the EU. And we've spoken about this before um, and how that's now been implemented into EU law. And Ireland is supposed to transpose that into our law. Um, on collective bargaining and you know as I said before like I don't know if we should be waiting around to see how watered down this government is going to make that uh, EU directive as would be typical any EU directive um, and I don't, I'm not really a fan of waiting around for the EU to give us rights anyway um, so I think it's something, something we should be campaigning on regardless. Yeah I mean obviously we need to see the legislation come through I think we need to be careful in trade union circles if they're painting it as a, an antidote to everything though because yeah I mean you might remove like the legal barrier to like a trade union organizer going into some building in the IFSC there. Um, but those workplaces then, you know, places still culturally people don't want to be identified as the union organizer or people are still so driven by their careers that they feel that that fear of victimization is still very much a real thing. Um, so I think it's going to be important for unions in, in, in many ways to keep demonstrating relevance and, and value to those workers across a number of fronts and that it's not just about the, the bread and butter and the terms and conditions and the recognition aspects um, because I think that there's going to have to be more of a, a case provi- presented by the unions than that. Yeah, yeah. And we even spoke about it last week with the the Iceland workers, with the independent workers union um, dispute. You know, they, they've followed the the laws that are there to try and contact the employer give them notice of a strike and this week we're finding out that that employer is now trying to injunct um, the independent workers union um on that um including some of the some some of the the members the the workers um and at the say in the same week that they have the absolute cheek not to pay any of their workers none of the work the iceland workers got paid on i think it was thursday or friday um so just want to flag again uh that the iwu do have a solidarity fund and now is a good week to be chipping a few bob in it if you have it and um, because they did not get their wages on top of all of the outstanding payments that a lot of them were owed um so it's getting very worrying and if, of course if anyone knows any iceland workers or is around any stores go in and show solidarity and tell them to join the union um because it's, it's it sounds like it's a it's pretty crucial, and that the ca- that campaign is uh, ramping up as well. Mm-hmm. Iceland, another British-owned um, big business as well. I think. Um, I just I think it's always just it's always worth pointing out when you got British employers over here doing that to Irish workers. I mean, we talk about you know the about post-colonial uh, mindsets or, or or what have you, you know, and or Connolly paraphrase Connolly about. Um, you know, changing the flag above the, the GPO and everything like that. Uh, I mean, ultimately, it's a, it's it's a it's a British businessman with an OBE who owns a British company who's employing workers in Ireland and and, and denying them that the, the money that they've been owned, they've they've been that they've earned. Yeah, that's absolutely it. Um, sorry. Um, yeah, no. Look, it's just I know that we're weaving back and forth between that um, Red Sea pole and kind of stories adjacent to it in the Irish economy. Um, and it's just because I've read it across two or three columns again today. Like, I thought we dispelled this myth of the squeeze middle like several years ago. Um, but it just seems that we keep coming back to it. Um, so obviously that's who the three Fine Gael TDs were pitching to at the start of the week. Um, and it's, I suppose, used non-ironically by a lot of columnists um, when they talk about who Leo Varadkar appeals to. The same people who obviously get up early in the morning. But um, yeah, look, I just... I, I, I just 
I don't know whether they're, whether they're circle jerking and just talking to themselves, but um, I just don't know. If any, I've, I've never heard anybody really identify as a member of the squeeze middle. Um, now, obviously, you do, you do hear people sometimes describe themselves as middle class or this, that, and the other, but I think, um, I think it's important to push back because when we see it like so repeatedly across, across the spectrum in relation to you know, just how the economy is going to be ruined, I think it just, just creates like, this sense of social cohesion that actually isn't there. And it just kind of deflects away from the class antagonisms that we we know are basically a fabric of, of everyday life, you know. Um, so yeah, just think it's it's a complete social construct, and it's just funny to see so much rhetoric uh, center back around notions of the squeeze in the middle again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I I know we're talking about polls, um, and what's been covered in the news this this week, but um, one poll. That was not covered in the news this week. Um, of course, uh, was the one that was talking about um the Ukraine, um Russia war and uh peace. Um, so the Peace and Neutrality Alliance Pana did um an ICOS poll, I think it's called. Um, which apparently wasn't ICOS, worth. Was oh, sorry, ICOS. Yeah, so apparently wasn't worth um reporting in the same way as the Red Sea poll this morning, but um. During, during like we and obviously we spoke a lot about neutrality in our last podcast and actually we had RTE listening to us uh, asking uh, if we wanted to view that or to, to speak about that on the upfront with Katie Hannon um but uh, unfortunately we weren't available but interesting to hear that um you know what we're saying is being listened to but unfortunately um that's not reflected in the wider media reporting of that poll um, so you heard uh, that the poll itself said that 87% of Irish people support a ceasefire to facilitate negotiations in the Ukraine war was was the actual outcome of that. And I just think that it it actually took a member of PANA going into the audience of that upfront with Katie, Katie Hannon to raise the fact that there was a poll. They did, that the presenter, which the poll was released that day. And the presenter did not rec- did not reference um, the fact that that poll had been released until the member in the audience from Pana had actually brought it up. Um, and this was obviously in response to um, Claire Daly, the MEP, um, being on the panel um, to discuss um, her position on, you know, anti-war position uh, for peace um, with U- U- Ukraine and Russia. And, you know, that it's working class people at the end of the day who are, who are being killed in that war. And a lot of the people who are pushing this, and we've discussed it here before, um, are the ones who won't be at the, the front lines and that won't be their children who will be dying in it. So very interesting to see. Not like it's actually not surprising at this point to, to see no media cover that poll. Um, saying that 87% of Irish people support a ceasefire to facilitate negotiations in the Ukraine war. Like, I just think that's such a significant portion of the population. And it was, you know, a, a great sample size and everything. And, you know, when we see the, the extension, the extent of the coverage of the Red Sea poll that was out this week and all the commentary off the back of it, and then compare it to when that poll was released and absolutely no one covering it in the mainstream media. It's really, really shocking and really kind of exposes the media position on, um, you know, what their role is in reporting uh, conflict. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, I won't bounce from saying that maybe Red Sea's poll needs needs to be taken with a grain of salt to say, I'm sure maybe that you could say the same thing about the Pana poll and other people on the other side will say, look, well, if you ask questions in a certain way, you're going to get answers in a certain way. But 87% is quite stark. Um, but I do think that there's, there's, there's evidently uh, 
you know, vibes and, and feelings towards peace and diplomacy and negotiations and some kind of an off-ramp um, right across uh, Irish civil society, um, going from both the left and the right of the spectrum. Um, and that's not represented in the public space, in the information space, um, which I suppose is, is you know, it's, it's it probably speaks a little bit to how, how Claire Daly was going into, you know, the... the Lions then on Monday, a little bit on Monday, she was going up against a reporter that, you know, works for a state broadcaster that's pretty much, you know, uh, in 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 view of, has made the value judgment about Russia and believes that we're all on the side of the angels and that's the end of it. Going up against an MEP who was, you know, Thomas Byrne, part of a, of, of, of a crew of, you know, Irish MEPs who see Project Europe as something that can't be criticised and if you're Eurosceptic on the left, you're the same as being Eurosceptic on the far right and you're no better than Farage. So he was never going to represent uh, Claire Daly's position fairly. And then you've got an audience with, I mean, let's 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 be honest here. You've got some people from Ukraine in the crowds, all of whom are, you know, well able to articulate um, how they feel about what's happened to their home country and, you know, are, are, are probably not going to give uh, a particular view of it that talks about any, any, any kind of... Um, I suppose, you know, negotiated settlement with who they see as the, the invaders and the aggressors. So it was a very difficult position for her to take. I thought she did very well. Um, funnily enough, the first half of the programme was about rewetting the boglands. And I thought Claire Daly absolutely schooled both Thomas Byrne, Michael Fitzmaurice, the Roscommon TD. I think Roscommon TD was, was, was there as well. And people from the farming community who, I mean, most a lot, a lot of them are, pretty much in the climate denialism camp as well. And Claire was able to navigate all of that. And I thought it was quite handy for her to be able to establish her credibility and her 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 knowledge base when it comes to EU legislation and how the processes works before they got to talking about neutrality and that. Um, and then she has to put some obstinate facts on the table about the fact that the conflict has gone on for eight, eight years and not eight months, about the fact that there's an underlying conflict that you know, has has led to the invasion in, in in many respects, and she didn't let Putin off the hook. She said exactly what she thought of what the what the invasion has done to uh, the poor people of Ukraine's country. Um, but the fact that like that's the first kind of interjection we've had on on state TV in the, in nearly a year and a half to 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 ex- to explore some of these views kind of speaks to the problem itself, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Like, uh, like when I heard um, or you were getting on um, Claire Daly, I was quite surprised because any other media coverage of Claire recently has just been bombarding her position in the, the European Parliament. So, um, good to be able to give her the space to have that kind of conversation, um, and actually, you know, put front um an anti-war position. Um, although obviously there was people who were going to uh, argue with that, but it was still. Uh, interesting bit late to be having this conversation you know like we could have been having this conversation um much earlier and much more frequently but nonetheless um good to have it um and there was some good contributions as well from from the audience members as I mentioned from from Pana and such as well um but I guess just on that that kind of um the top moving on to the topic maybe of more geopolitical um area then you said you had a couple of stories that you were reading um uh, this week um yeah and look I Maybe I say this kind of every time I'm on, but I do sometimes feel like there's like an, an interconnectedness between a lot of the stories that we talk about. But maybe that's just because we're Marxists in our outlook and we see we see these 
contradictions and we see how the different stories um, kind of juxtapose with each other. Um, but yeah, look, overnight, and this stuff is probably still unfolding as I speak, um, just trying to get my head around some of the stuff going on in the US economy. Um, so there's kind of talk that the Democrats and the Republicans are um, basically after agreeing a deal to raise the debt ceiling, which will basically mean that there won't be any global economic turmoil. Um, and obviously within that, you've got all of the apparent compromises that Biden has to make with the Republicans in order to uh, ensure the continuance of that. So um, I suppose, uh, and you're told how it's going to be difficult for Democrats to swallow things like they're going to, I think there's going to be like work-based um, guarantees needed for, for people to get food stamps. So yes, yeah, some some wins for the Republican e- economic right, it seems, uh, but the House always wins over there. Um, but yeah, like I think it's just interesting to think about, um, I mean, obviously the US economy, there could be several ways to come at this. I'm, I'm just going to signpost to a really interesting podcast um, on geopoliticaleconomy.com. It's a website run by uh, Ben Norton. And there's a conversation with um, Michael Hudson and Radhika Desi, I think is how her name is pronounced. And it's just a really useful explainer of the US economy and essentially like talks about how GDP basically a shorthand for what is called a rentier economy under neoliberalism. And they separate out finance, insurance, and real estate, or abbreviated to FIRE, which are like against the rest of the economy. Um, and talks about how like the US economy just simply has no room to grow anymore. Um, and then if you add on top of that the big increases in military spending, uh, forced cutbacks and social programs to achieve that balanced budget that those Western economies are so obsessed with. Um, and then you think about where the which which, which economic model the EU has hitched this wagon to. It's that of the US is so um that's something I recommend people go and have a listen to if you want to get kind of a jargon break in terms of how the, the US economy is functioning and I suppose how it just seems to be in a state of decay. Um and like obviously these things take a lot longer to die and to wither away than others, but I think it also maybe speaks to the increased jingoism that we see from Washington in terms of they want to stay dominant at all costs. Um and ultimately that means that they have to get more aggressive in Asia uh, as, as, as a result. Um, I suppose to wrap that up then is, is that there's a, a short piece in the Morning Star from last week which kind of talks about um, the, the summary of the G7 summit. Just if the, the headline is um, Western Imperialism, Western Imperialism's quack medicine at G7 and um, just kind of basically says that all socialists need to have an eye on world opinion uh, because the US wants to maintain this domination at whatever cost. Um, there's a warning shot across the bells, and that that's not what about re, that's not um Putin apologism. It's recognizing the, the the US's role as the dominant hegemon and I suppose realizing that, that everything exists as a reaction to that. Um sorry, yeah. And, and other things, just a quick look around the world in terms of what else is going on. There's obviously um pushback at an EU level, very interesting. Um so Hungary is due to get the EU presidency next. I think it's the three main parliamentary parties in the EU is the SD, the EPP, and Renew Europe, which is formerly uh, the ALDE, basically uh, penned a letter saying that they're unfit for the presidency because they're uh, constantly in breaches of EU law. So obviously, Hungary have pushed back, saying it's the same old charge that they make against us and that this is about our stance on, on the war. Um, so I have a funny feeling that, that Hungary won't be enabled to have the presidency next year, and maybe that will. I mean, there's some talk that will push Hungary out of the EU over the medium term, but no, that's that's 
something to keep an eye on. Um, and then NATO's trying to find a, a, a new leader as well. Uh, among the running, apparently, is Ursula von der Leyen. So I think I'd probably prefer to have her away from the EU. <laughs> she could do less damage. Uh, and then finally, it's just, this I don't know if it's less. Da- I don't know if it's less damage, but the same damage in a different place. But anyway, yeah, uh, I started to consider NATO a little bit of a paper tiger, given that they've they've seemed to have burned through most of their, their artillery. And then this this isn't a parody. Um, Boris Johnson has been sent to America to try and persuade Donald Trump uh, to row in behind the proxy war and abandon his pro peace stance in Ukraine. So, yeah, make of that what you will. Yeah, well, it wouldn't be the first time the Boris has rolled in to try and disrupt the the peace, um, any peace agreement there. So that's interesting. But um, speaking of peace, um, there's actually a story that I was reading um, from In These Times, and it's actually by um, a writer who attended uh, the Left Block Festival uh, Tommaso Lanzig. So he was writing about um, Colombian peasants and um, the impact that an Irish-owned company, uh, Smurfacapa, for anyone who's not familiar um, with them, there are a packaging company um, that are they're based. Their HQ is based in Ireland, um, Irish multinational, um, and they they own like sixty-eight thousand hectares of forestry plantations, um, which the majority of is in Colombia, um, and it's been interesting now. Um, and I've heard this this coming up a couple of times, but it's good to see it being raised again. But essentially what's happening now, it looks like um, that the local peasants there have lost the majority of their land that they need for food growing uh, in Colombia. And um, because of the Smurfacapa's kind of cropping, the crop way they run their crops, their use of chemicals has been destroying um, the, the the environment there um, to the point where they it's now not been really been able to use. Their native forests are disappearing and their water has been destroyed like destroyed as well but now things seem to be ramping up a little bit more um there seems to be a lot of um that any resistance to um you know this in Colombia has been met with a lot of violence um and it has been kind of flagged a couple of times that you know activists are actually being um it looks like they're being targeted and actually killed and you know the fact that an Irish company is being linked to this and what the Smurfa Kappa have come out and said is like oh we're working with the authorities you know you know to to have a smooth transition with locals or whatever but um it, it is interesting because our own government says you know that they support peace in Colombia but it looks like they're say have absolutely nothing to say um with the fact that it looks like Smurfa Kappa is actually um you know involved in some some of the the uh, fairly violent disputes that are happening over there when it seems like um, Smurf Kappa are just being solely um, driven by profit um, and destroying their environment and actually potentially being linked to um, deaths in the area. So I think it's one to maybe keep an eye on and um, potentially something that our own government need to be speaking up about, seeing as this is an Irish multinational. Um, and, you know, we talk about the tech multinationals coming here and this, what they're doing here, but like, are, are we looking at what uh, Smart for Kappa is doing to Colombian peace in particular? Apparently it's really disrupting the peace agreement there um, and their role in that. So I think it's something that needs to be to be raised. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know the, the ins and outs. I, I imagine just thinking to to Connor's whole analysis of the Comprador middleman here. I mean, not to say there's anybody in an office in Smurfit in Dublin who's directly responsible for that, but I mean, like, there's definitely some culpability there. Um, but you can imagine how these things emerge. It's not great. It's not 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 good. Not good viewing. But um, get a form in that part of the world. And um, was it Maduro? Um, just expropriated a Smurfa Kappa factory a few years ago in Venezuela as well. Um, the, the interest in history in that part of the world for an Irish multinational. Yeah, and, and just an addition as well, because the, the author mentioned um, 
that this particular that Smart for Kappa actually used to share an office and consular emails with the Irish diplomatic staff in Colombia. So there's like it's a very tied up and very much yeah. But yeah, again, it's it's the government, our government saying out of one side of their mouth, like we support peace in Colombia, but then actually when there's an Irish multinational being involved, then it's doesn't seem to maybe something for to be raised again um with them, but be interested to see if that that actually is commented on at all um or recognized. Free free trade or just exploitation seems to just mean the same thing as supporting democracy and human rights in these places. Yeah, absolutely. Um Ken, if you don't have any more, do you have any more stories there that you want to touch on before we wrap up? Um, I just, I mean, like, I try to be a little bit jovial about it, because I know this, the spine of this episode has kind of been that Red Sea Pole, but it was the week started with Fine Gael doing what Fine Gael always do, and it was basically seeing a problem that exists at the societal level and su- suggesting that a tax break is the solution to it. Um, I'm just trying to think, was there anything, any any problem in the history of the world that, that Fine Gael didn't propose a tax break to um, and I just I don't know is it like I, I sometimes I, I oscillate between the two thoughts is it actually that like all they're capable of is like simple one size fits all kind of not nuanced at all policy making or do they actually understand that they benefit like the better off and the widen the wealth gap sometimes I'm not sure whether it's a case of one or the other but um, I think what's disappointing again is like when you see how much the media elevates conversations around a tax break because it just narrows the focus of policymaking. And then obviously, as, as, as has been highlighted in this, this several times, whether it's been with the health system or, or housing, it doesn't address the real causes or the systemic issues. Um, but yes, I just thought I'd just, just wrap up on that. But um, if anybody has a solution for the, the litany of uh, proposals that centre around tax breaks, maybe we need a tax break for politicians who don't suggest tax breaks as policy solutions. I'm not sure. I feel like that's you suggesting tax breaks though, Glenn. So are you know, <laughs> is that where we're leaving it? <laughs> but yeah, no, brilliant. Um, thanks so much for that, Glenn, um, for being my co-host today. Um, and no, that's been pleasure. us at the, the week at work. Um, so do give us a share online um, and, and tell your friends. Um, and of course, again, I'll plug the patreon.com slash left block. And that's all from us for this week. <laughs>